Well, this, uh, we, again, we're going through the Sermon on the Mount in a series that we're calling Being Whole Disciples. Uh, whole Disciples in the fact that the, the demand for being a disciple is one of, of the whole person, of wholeheartedness. But also whole disciples because we are called to be disciples of Jesus in his kingdom of wholeness and of restoration. And he is making us whole also in it. And so we now come to Matthew chapter 6, uh, verses 1 through 18. Uh, Pay careful attention. This is God's word. Beware of practicing your righteousness before others or before other people in order to be seen by them. For then you will have no reward from your Father who is in heaven. Thus, when you give to the needy, sound no trumpet before you, as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and in the streets, that they may be praised by others. Truly, I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you give to the needy, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing, so that your giving may be in secret, and your Father who sees in secret will reward you. And when you pray, you must not be like the hypocrites, for they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and at the street corners, that they may be seen by others. Truly, I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you pray, go into your room and shut the door and pray to your father who is in secret. And your father who sees in secret will reward you. And when you pray, do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do, for they think that they will be heard for their many words. Do not be like them, for your father knows what you need before you ask him. Pray then like this, our father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your father forgive your trespasses. And when you fast, do not look gloomy like the hypocrites, for they disfigure their faces that their fasting may be seen by others. Truly I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you fast, anoint your head and wash your face, that your fasting may not be seen by others, but by your Father who is in secret. And your Father who sees in secret will reward you. Amen. Humanity as a whole is quite apt at taking things that are good and then misusing them by turning them around for wrong purposes which were never intended. For instance, we have all sorts of technologies that were created for good ends which have been warped and turned for evil purposes. The internet has amazing capabilities to share information and and for mass communication. But as we've seen also to spread all sorts of, of evil and wickedness. Medicines that were developed for good purposes, like alleviating pain, have also been misused as addictions are fed. Or pizza. I know that some of you feel very strongly that pineapple doesn't belong on pizza and that this is a misuse of something that was good and was never intended to be done. Did I hear an amen? (laughs) But we have the same issue, though, with good works or with what Jesus refers to as righteousness. 
A righteousness and good works are intended to be done with an orientation that points outside of ourselves. They're done properly out of devotion for God. For the disciple of Jesus, they are for his glory, and they are lovingly done in order to please him. And they're also, though, done for the good of our fellow humanity. Righteous works are self-forgetful. They're done with others in mind. But like all good things, we have a tendency to misuse them at times. They can be turned from their intended goals or, or the, of the good of the other and the glory of God. And then we have a tendency at times to shift them towards our own selves and for our own glory. And sometimes this shift becomes a little subtle. It may not be as intended. It may not be as brazen or as it sounds. It may not even be as that drastic. But if the human heart, though, left to its own devices, is inclined to turn inwards and to focus upon itself, then we shouldn't be surprised. And that's what Jesus is getting at here with this next movement that we have in the Sermon on the Mount. Overall, he is outlining that being a disciple involves following him with a whole heart. And he's just spent a lengthy amount of time here addressing that the righteousness, which is to characterize a disciple, isn't to be done at a bare minimum or, it's, or merely externally, but it is supposed to be done wholeheartedly. And now he's beginning to show that engaging in a whole person acts of righteousness is to be done with this sort of Godward orientation. It isn't concerned with itself or with receiving the accolades of others, but it's done with a particular self-forgetfulness that seeks the glory of God and the good of others. So we can say this, a disciple practices righteousness from a heart that knows their loving father and seeks his glory rather than their own self. A disciple practices righteousness from a heart that knows their loving father and it seeks his glory rather than one's own self. And there are four main ideas that I want us to see related to this. And the first is that religious righteousness is practiced. Religious righteousness is practiced. Verse one, beware of practicing your righteousness before others in order to be seen by them. Jesus assumes that righteousness is something that is practiced. It's lived out. It is not merely an inward disposition that we have. It works itself out from the heart. It's something that is done. And he equates righteousness here with religious duty because he gives three examples of what it looks like then to practice righteousness in a manner that's oriented towards God. Verse two, giving to the needy. The second is prayer in verse 5. And the third in verse 16 is fasting. These were all the common religious activities for these people. They were the three main categories of piety among these people. In fact, these, these actually represent categories of devotion in some form or fashion for all sorts of religious traditions across the world and throughout history. But Jesus is implying that righteousness has an inherently religious character to it. These are good works which are oriented towards God. They are directed towards him in a singular devotion. They are done to please him. And this also means then that righteousness and spiritual devotion isn't merely inwards. Devotion to God is practiced through acts of righteousness. 
It's not purely dispositional or merely reside in the spirit. If he is calling disciples to honor and to follow him with all their, they are, their whole selves, and that means both body and spirit. A proper relationship with God is one that inhabits the whole being. It isn't relegated to merely an internal affair, but it involves actions and works of righteousness that are done out of a loving devotion to him. That means that spiritual devotion doesn't merely reside in the mind. It's not just the study of God's word. It doesn't reside only in the heart and the affections. It's not just the feelings that we have. A whole person here means means following also in the body. Doing righteousness means doing with our whole selves. It's our practice. And so discipleship also then entails a real relationship with God. That's what it's founded upon here. But we know that relationships are more than just putting your thoughts upon another. Thinking about the other person in a relationship without giving any action or anything of substance into that relationship isn't much of a real relationship. Inward feelings alone don't constitute a relationship. A real relationship is one that's lived. Devotion to someone else is active. And a relationship with God resides not only in the soul, but then outside through the body. Righteousness is practiced. But two, our second thesis here, righteous acts have a heart orientation. Righteous acts have a heart orientation. Religious righteousness isn't relegated only to the insides. But at the, at the same time, though, the inside matters, though. Because Jesus then begins to ask about our intent for when we practice righteousness. Again, verse 1, Beware of practicing your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them. The warning isn't about embodying righteousness and, and, and practicing it in your life. The warning here is about where it's aimed. It's what's the intent. Disciples that are called by God to follow them with their whole selves here. And that's because he saves us with, uh, with both our bodies and our souls. He saves our whole selves. And thus then the life of discipleship is lived in a loving devotion to him out of thankfulness as opposed to trying to appease him or to earn something. So then a religious and a righteous act that's properly done is oriented towards God. It's done to please him. But that is entirely different though than what Jesus is warning against here. God isn't mentioned at all as the goal. It's other people. But not as the intended recipients. It's others as the givers back in return. There is a distinct self-centeredness that he's warning us about here. Practicing righteousness in order to be seen and to gain applause. It's using religious acts and righteousness as a, our own personal performative stage so that all of the accolades and all the kudos then can be given to them instead of where they ought to be due, which is to God. And again, that's the matter of, of intent. The heart is oriented towards itself rather than others. And Jesus then uses these three religious duties that we have here mentioned previously to highlight this self-seeking righteousness, giving to the needy. He paints this picture of a grand procession parading through the streets, making a giant spectacle while giving to the poor. 
They're on their way to give to the synagogue's relief fund or marching about putting money in the hands of beggars as they advertise their good. And all the while then, the poor are offering up these exuberant thanks and all the onlookers are clapping and they're getting out their phones and they're taking videos to send to their friends and to go viral on social media. The second one is prayer. The religious leaders standing on the street corners and in the worship services praying aloud. The issue isn't them praying aloud because everyone in this time prayed aloud and read aloud. It was a cultural thing. But it's their love of positions and it's the pompousness and the verbosity and the loquacious prolics of their prayers. See what I did there? (laughs) It was praying to impress through their words and to show just how spiritual they were. Now, we're going to focus next week particularly on verses 7 through 15 in prayer. So if you have questions on that, hold on for next week. But then the other one was fasting. Fasting is an act of humility where something, usually food, is given up for a time that's devoted for prayer. Now, fasting can be done whether or not someone really knows it, that, that you're doing it. But in this case, though, they're letting everyone know just how much they're suffering. They're rubbing ashes on their faces. They're going without bodily hygiene because nothing says I'm spiritual like giving up deodorant. But the point is that perhaps the most hidden spiritual discipline had to be known by everyone so that they would know just how spiritual they really were. Now, is there anything wrong with giving to the needy, with prayer, and with fasting? Not at all. Jesus upholds these disciplines. And in fact, it's assumed that a disciple will do all of these things because each section begins with when you do this. And I think that assumption applies still to us today. There are all sorts of legitimate acts of righteousness here that we see on one level. In the case of even giving to the needy, there was some very real, tangible good that was being done. But even though these were still righteous acts, And with some actual good outcomes, there was something, though, that made all of this wrong. And that was the intent. The heart wasn't oriented towards God. It was oriented to the self. Giving to the poor wasn't done out of genuine love for the people. Prayer wasn't done out of a genuine love for God. Fasting wasn't done with a genuine humility. The genuine love and the desires were really actually aimed at their own selves in order to be better thought of by others or even making the hidden seen by others. And Jesus refers to these people as hypocrites. The hypocrites are pretenders. A hypocrite pretends to be someone who they're not in real life. They pretend to live in a certain way, but they don't actually match up with their professed beliefs. And in this case that we have here, They claim to be devoted to God by their religious practices. But instead, though, their devotion isn't to God, it's to themselves. Their practice of righteousness is all pretend, like they're actors playing a role in some production, and they all want the attention directed towards their own performance on stage. This is where it gets even a little messy, because the hypocrite isn't someone who sets out to deceive others, at least in terms of trying to lead them astray. 
there is an, el- an, el- an element of deceiving others into thinking that they are who they actually aren't. And the heart and the intent gives that away. But really, the hypocrite doesn't try to deceive. But the hypocrite is someone who is self-deceived. Someone who actually thinks that they are righteous by his own actions, by something that he can point to. And his actions are the proof, though, at the same time of his own delusion. And then the praise of others just continues to affirm that. It's a sort of feedback loop that goes over and over. See, I give to the needy. I pray. I fast. But for who? Not for God. Not for his glory. Not for the good of others. And the hypocrite then slowly becomes like an actor who thinks of himself or herself in the role that they play in the movie. Where that the lines of fantasy and reality begin to blur together. Think of how ridiculous that would be. An actor in a superhero film who slowly, over time, starts to think that they really are that hero. With all their superpowers, with that persona, they point to the costume that they wear, the lines that they know, they point to the, to the movie screen and they look at all the visual effects and things that, they're, that they think that they're doing on there as proof. It would be a ridiculously tragic instance of self-deception. But the hypocrite goes through a similar sort of blurred reality. They point to all their works of righteousness, all the things that they've done, but there's something at the center of it all that they've misplaced. It's the heart. The heart gives it all away. Real righteousness isn't directed towards the self. It's directed towards God. But then Jesus puts the hypocrite in contrast with the disciple then. A disciple as someone who practices their righteousness in a much different way. They do so quietly. They do so without any fanfare because their hearts are directed towards God. When the, when the disciple gives to the needy, the only person he needs to know is God who sees and who knows all things. Because his or her repu- own reputation or glory, and it doesn't matter. They're not seeking thanks or recognition from anyone except to please the Lord whom they follow. In fact, they aren't even taken with any form of self-congratulation. It says here that uh, they won't even let the left hand know what the right is doing. And self-congratulation, how we feel about ourselves after we do something good, can be just as revealing of the heart. Or when a disciple prays, they're to do so out of a personal devotion and a love of communing with God. So since prayers were offered aloud in this time, then they're, to, they're content to go into an inner room where no one can hear them except the God who listens to them. Or when a disciple fasts, God is the only one who needs to know. There's no show involved in the spiritual act. So he or she goes about their everyday lives without making it public. And the reason why disciples are to practice their righteousness in this way is because the heart and the intent is oriented towards God, not themselves. The purpose of practicing righteousness and devoting oneself to righteous acts is from a heart that loves him. And so the outward show, the display, it's not important. Unlike the hypocrite, there's no pretend part to play that we have. There's no self-deception. Now, no one wants to be a hypocrite. Being a, called a hypocrite is probably one of the worst things that someone could be called in our culture that isn't a vulgarity. 
everyone wants to be noble. Everyone wants to be seen as, as properly oriented or as pure-hearted. And we might bristle at the thought of being a hypocrite. But at the same time, we ask ourselves, well, how do I know then whether or not I am one? Especially if self-deception plays a role. I can't just point at my religious acts of righteousness if I'm self-deceived. But here's how we find out. What are you seeking? What's the reward that you're hoping for in any instance of practicing righteousness? That brings us to our third idea, that everyone seeks a reward. Everyone seeks a reward. Everyone has a certain goal in mind when they perform an action. It's the reward, receiving what was sought after. But reward isn't necessarily a wrong thing. Put aside any ideas of achievement awards, of, of uh, earning a trophy, or whatever other cheap connotations that we have about a reward. Because at its core, reward is what drives us. It's what guides our purposes and our intents in doing something. It's where pleasure and joy is derived. Everyone is driven by rewards to some degree. A reward is really just an incentive to an action. And the incentive provides the goal, and there's joy and pleasure when the goal is achieved. If there is no rewards which, which drove us, then purpose or duty would be meaningless. Reward isn't wrong. What Jesus does, though, here is he calls into question our idea of reward. Because you can identify the joy and the pleasure of the desired outcome. If you can do that, then you can recognize the intent. And that will then break the facade of self-deception for any hypocrite. It will reveal the heart. And Jesus does so here by opening up the, re the rewards for both the hypocrite and the wholehearted disciple. The hypocrite practices their righteousness before others for recognition. Why? To be noticed. And being noticed brings glory, accolades, and reputation from others for their deep religiosity. And that reward is properly received. Three times Jesus says, Truly, I say to you, they have received their reward. Note that he affirms that they get their reward in full. They get what they want. The whole thing's paid out to them. But that's because the reward that they wanted was so worthless and low. It was just simply the praise of others. And how weak and worthless is really the praise and recognition of others. At least that alone. It doesn't take very long until your honors are replaced by another who comes after you. Or people just don't care anymore. Monuments that are built for heroes are eventually pulled down, or they fade into obscurity, or they become a roosting place for pigeons. So friend, if you're seeking after recognition from others for your good deeds, if your motivation for serving in the church or engaging in acts of righteousness is motivated by your desire to be seen or known, then you're going to be sorely disappointed. People might care for now. Not for very long. But meanwhile, though, the wholehearted disciple seeks after reward too. But a different reward. It's not for their own selves, but in order to please God. Because they aren't concerned with accolades or recognition from others. Because of that, they're free from having to perform before others. All the pressure is off because they can simply practice their righteousness quietly and in obscurity. 
None of the show matters because God sees and he knows what's, what's in them already. He knows their hearts. And here's the thing. The reward for a wholehearted disciple is also approval. But it's not approval from others. It's approval from God the Father. It's the joy of hearing the words from their heavenly Father tell them with deep love, well done, my good and faithful servant. It's the joy of knowing that God is well pleased with them for their love of others in need. The joy of communing with the living God through prayer. It's the joy of being satisfied by God, even in expressions of humility. And that's something that's much more valuable than the praise of others around you. This is an approval and a reward that will echo into eternity as Jesus' disciples enter into his kingdom in fullness. Generosity, prayer, fasting, these are all good things and we ought to do them more. Again, Jesus assumes that his disciples will be practicing these things regularly. But why do we do them? Simply saying that they're good isn't enough. What's the motivation? What's the reward for engaging in these good works? That's a question for, us, for all of us to ask ourselves, regardless of whether or not you call yourself a, a disciple of Jesus or a Christian. What is it that motivates you into performing whatever religious or spiritual actions that you do? Again, even if you don't call yourself a disciple or a Christian, then it's likely that there's some sort of transcendent duty or a religious practice that you perform. What motivates you in that? What's the reward or the goal behind it all? If you are a Christian or if you are a regular part of Redeemer, what's the reward that you're seeking after in any instance of service to others or in worship or in ministry? What's the joy that you hope to to derive? It could be image. Either building one, maintaining one, so that people can affirm whatever image it is that I want to project about myself. Could be self-worth. I feel valuable when others recognize the work that I do, or I just feel good about myself when I do it. These are powerful inclinations that we feel and which drive us. And for some, it gets at our need of personal affirmation. But to what end? If it's affirmation that you're looking for, then don't go seeking it from other people. What affirmation could be better than the words of good pleasure from God? What could be more lasting? What could warm the heart more and sustain us more than that? And by the way, these are questions that pastors need to ask themselves too. Pastors also need to check their own motives. Every sermon I write, I have to ask myself, who am I aiming to glorify in this? With every sort of conversation or counseling moment that I have or where I'm applying the gospel to someone so that Jesus can make them whole, do I do so in order that I can gain a a recognition as being a, a great man who applies the gospel? Or is it so that Jesus can be known as the great healer and the great physician? And we don't need to be afraid of these questions because we fear the answers of our hearts. We can And we ought to be honest in these because that's where growth happens. That's where God shows us time over time all of our cheap joys that we crave in our hearts and he slowly replaces them with self-forgetfulness. 
And the more that he brings us back into seeing him in terms of a father who satisfies our desires of reward and gives us joys in our work, the more and more he does that, the more we will grow. And that's our last idea here. Disciples know God as their father. Disciples know God as their father. I hope you didn't miss all the times over and over that the word father or your father is used in this passage. It's repeated over and over because a relationship with God as father is the bedrock of being a disciple. Disciples bear a distinct relationship with God that cannot be found anywhere else. They relate to God as their father in the best way possible because God relates to them as a perfect and a loving father. When Jesus invites someone into a life of following him as a disciple, he invites them first into taking hold of him by faith and by being united to him so that his kingdom becomes our kingdom. His life and righteousness becomes ours. His work on the cross is then applied to us. And that father-son relationship that he has with God the Father also becomes ours. That if you're a disciple, then Jesus brings you also into this loving relationship between he and the Father. And so that's the Father, so that then the Father's pleasure and his joy in Jesus the Son is also the pleasure and joy that he has in you. And that makes all the difference in discipleship. When a disciple practices his or her righteousness in a wholehearted way towards God, it relies on this fatherly relationship. This relationship provides the source of satisfaction and of reward that is sought after. Affirmation and joy can only be found in God as a reward if you know him as father. And his delight and his pleasure in you arises if he knows you as a father does to his children. The disciple longs to please God based upon this loving relationship, just as a child longs to please his or her parent and then receives the joy with the words that are spoken of, well done. My children are so thrilled when they bring little projects that they make, drawings, creations out of blocks. Just this morning, a birthday cake made out of magnetiles. And I love to see what it is that they bring. And the best words that, I can, that they can hear are, I love this, well done. This is excellent. I'm really glad you showed me. That's their reward. It's the affirmation and the joy of dad. When your heart is oriented away from yourself and towards God, instead, as you practice righteousness, he will not be disinterested. He will take an even better joy and delight and pleasure as he smiles and he says, well done done. There's no having to coerce him or have to earn his joy by doing righteousness. It already simply exists of that because of that relationship that you've been brought into by Jesus. A disciple practices righteousness from a heart that knows their loving father and it seeks his glory rather than their own self. Don't turn practicing your righteousness into a performance. It's not a stage, nor is the disciple an actor. There's no pretending, there's no performing to be done here when a disciple is oriented towards God the Father with their whole heart, seeking after his joy and his glory.
Let's come before our heavenly father, knowing that he wants to hear our words and that he loves us. Let's come into him in, in prayer now. Father, we love that we can call you that. We thank you for giving us Jesus, your son, who by his cross has reconciled us so that we are no longer enemies, but that we are your children. And would that then be that which fuels our devotion towards you, a wholehearted devotion, a whole person devotion, that our acts of righteousness that we do would stem from that, from a changed heart, that our acts of righteousness would not be done in vain towards ourselves or for seeking glory for ourselves, but that they would be done with a full, in a full sense for your glory. Lord, let us put aside our own selves and let us instead look to you in those times. Show us our, the ways that we have failed though at this, but do not just leave us there again. Show us your fatherly goodness. Raise us back up here. Show us your character again. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.